haste to go and speak. That's the way we live. Okay, guys, welcome uh, back to the Drive America show. Uh, this will be our fourth episode. Um, and as promised, we, we've brought back uh, Red Pill Junkie to, to have a chat with us and bring us up to date with some of the, the latest and greatest. Uh, but first, uh, I'd like to introduce, as, as always, my co-host, Graham. How are you doing, Graham? Hey, I'm doing excellent. Looking forward to chatting with both you guys. How's it going, Red? How was, uh, how you been the last couple of weeks? Hello, my friends. Hello to all our listeners all around the world. And hello to the NSA agent monitoring this conversation on Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least uh, we're happy to say we've got our, our, our recording gremlins worked out. Seems like everything's up and running again. So that's that's good to know. Maybe it was the, the Hadels after all. The Hadels, the MIBs. Who knows? <laughs> Mr. Indrid Colt. Playing around with us. <laughs> so I read the red, the red pills were great last week. I, I got to say, Red, I, I really enjoyed them. Great work as always. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Do you have anything uh, new for us? Well, no. Uh, uh, I could, uh, we could really say that the mainstream news have definitely, uh, I don't know, uh, been more important than the fortune news. You know, like uh, I started uh, right now with a joke about the NSA because, you know, the talk of the, the, the time right now is the shock of discovering that the United States government is, is gathering all this information from all the major uh, Internet uh, service providers, Google and Microsoft, YouTube, Skype, uh, which, which wasn't so much uh, of a really a, a, a news to us because we already knew that the United States government was building a really big, ginormous installation in Utah, which was intended to collect uh, internet data. But now uh, this is, I know, this is in, in everybody's minds. I know I think that it has finally clicked uh, how uh, enormous, how big, how pre pre prevailing this uh, surveillance it really is. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty. Uh, it's pretty fucked up. And uh, there, didn't they they say that they're recording phone conversations as well and storing? Yeah, them? Uh, the Guardian broke the news that uh, phone uh, provider Verizon uh, is giving to the United States all the metadata uh, for all, for all the calls of all their clients. I mean, the metadata is about I don't know who is calling who. Uh, where everybody is and how long did the conversation uh, take. Yeah, it's interesting how the mainstream is starting to cover it. That's what I find fascinating is uh, that along with another a few things that have happened, um, you know, controversies in the political establishment of the U.S. and the mainstream, it's starting to, it's starting to open up or something's going on. Yeah, exactly, because, you know, back in the 1990s, uh, there was talk among the parapolitical sites about uh, something called Project Echelon. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Project. I'm not sure I have. I'd, I'd have to look in. I, the name sounds familiar for sure. Well, I think they even made a, 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 a TV movie about yeah, it. Yeah, there was a movie about it. It was a good movie, actually. I didn't see it, but uh, what I 
do know about of Project Echelon. Well, it, it was a rumor back in the nineties that it was some super secret program that was intended to uh, uh, spy on all the electronic communications made all around the world. And and I'm not talking just about uh, in, uh, internet emails. They were talking about even <laughs> faxes and uh, phone calls on landlines and everybody, everything. Everything was being uh, surveilled by this super secret project. But back in those days, it was uh, only a conspiracy theory, you know? It was <laughs> it was Alex Jones stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now with the news of this uh, new project, Project Prism, you know, it's it's finally uh, you know, uh, mainstream news. Yeah, and the, and the the storage capacity is something like I, I heard something about a couple terabytes per per second or per minute or some ridiculous amount of uh, of capacity. Yeah, I read a, a, an article on Wired about the facility on Utah. They, they were talking about uh, yottabytes of, <laughs> of uh-huh. information, and I, I don't even know what the hell a yottabyte is. But <laughs> there must be Quite a bit, uh, quite a lot of Instagram pictures <laughs> there. What yeah, is it? No, a, a, a what? A lot of byte? Yottabyte. Yottabyte. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Which is probably like a thousand terabytes or something like that. No, I think it's a, a thousand petabytes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A I lot mean, of that's, byte. That's enough of insanely amount of information. Did you say a lot of byte, Graham? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> is bite. this a fucking James Cameron movie? <laughs> <laughs> And with this, with that kind of information that they have to parcel through, I mean, it's it opens to a speculation about what are the other things they must have already that we think it's only science fiction stuff. You know, I mean, maybe they have already quantum computers capable of uh, checking all this data in a matter of well, instantaneously if it, if it is quantum computers. Maybe they have AI systems that are able to uh, to detect uh, the, all these key keywords uh, that are being flagged. You know, the terrorism, Obama, uh, all those things that are being discussed right now in the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we can really say with any certainty is that prison must be the tip of a very big iceberg. Hopefully, yeah. all about to come crumbling down. Well, doesn't look like it, you know, because the thing that the most depressing thing about this is that all these systems were implemented uh, back when uh, George Bush was getting out of the presidency. But with President Obama, <laughs> he has not not only maintained those uh, those policies on, and those programs, but he has reinforced them. You know, and he has come out to say that. Uh, these programs are important because they have saved lives and they have averted terrorist attacks. But the moment you you start to question about those terrorist attacks, they say, "Oh, we can't talk about it because it's classified information." Yeah. Okay, you you just have to take our word for it. Uh, okay. It seems like we're always expected to trust them. Um, I'd like to hope that things aren't like that in Canada, but I'm sure there's a little bit of it. Harper's well, right true. on board. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and think it's. Also, I think it's probably more worldwide in a way. It is. A it probably is. Web. Yeah. It probably is. Yeah. And we can also uh, forget that this week started 
finally started the, the trial uh, we, uh, against Bradley Manning. You know, after three years of having him uh, arrested and kept in a prison in, in which apparently was uh, in human conditions. But he, he finally is being taken to trial and it seems that uh, through the efforts of some uh, uh, NGOs, the transcript of this trial will be available to the public. Yeah, I heard uh, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, um, petition for him is up to like 65,000 signatures or something like that. Mm. So I guess we'll see what happens. What exactly was he charged with again? Uh, treason. <laughs> treason and aiding, uh, giving information to the enemy. Like, oh, come on. I mean, the guy gave information, uh, all these uh, leaked files to WikiLeaks. But the, the, the United States government is making the case that because of this, uh, the information fell, fell in the hands of Al-Qaeda. Hmm. So the, uh, the guy could, there is a, a very slim possibility that the guy could be either spend the rest of his life uh, uh, on jail or maybe even uh, executed for treason. I mean, he's made, he's being made a, a scapegoat. I mean, you 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 look at him at he at him his example his trial, and you look at all the other things that we are seeing right now with uh, all these inform information gathering uh, by the by the NSA. And I mean, I think it's all related. It's all connected. Yeah, I'd I wouldn't be surprised if the NSA was gathering information on the entire uh, the entire planet. But uh, I wouldn't imagine they could ever let something like that get out because I'd imagine there'd be a, quite a few countries that would be fairly pissed off. Yeah, there's an article on the CBC uh, right now, actually, and it says uh, the title is Uf U.S. Officials Long Denied Massive Data Trawling. And it goes into exactly what you were talking about, uh, Red. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's coming out. There was, also, there was also an interesting, <laughs> kind of ironic... Uh, uh, blog post uh, written by Anthony Bragala back in, in his uh, website, the UFO Iconoclasts, that he was taking, talking about uh, the Navy spying on UFO, UFO websites. Yeah, you yeah. guys read it? I heard about it. I think I heard about it on the Graylian. I heard last. about it on the Graylian, yeah. Yeah, I, I sent that, uh, uh, that news to Micah. Maybe yeah, was. that's right. He actually mentioned that. And it's kind of an interesting thing because uh, either you can look at it as something completely I know, innocuous, you know, maybe some some people working for the government that have, have a, a personal interest in UFOs and are and are using uh, the the war computers to look at look at those sites uh, while they are on their lunch break or whatever. <laughs> or maybe it was it is used as a kind of uh, psyops. I don't know, trying to fuck with the minds of of the, of the ufologists, trying to incite some paranoia on them. It could also be just just that they want to know more information about what everybody is seeing, right? It's like a data collection, right? Yeah. Instead of just being able to collect the data in secret through the Navy or the OSI or whatever, you can use all the data from the civilian agencies or civilian organizations to, to help, you know, figure out what's going on. Yeah, but the, the manner in, in which these guys are 
looking at these sites. I mean, it's it's, it's so conspicuous. Ah. It's so easy, it's so easily traceable. It tells you. I think it tells you something because if they really wanted to keep it a secret, I I'm sure they have capabilities to to make those uh, in, uh, inspections uh, completely untraceable. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's like they want to get caught. I think they want to know that that uh, they want to let know to, to these people that they are being watched. Yeah. You no, know, as, as a way to uh, uh, tell you, fucking with their minds. A Greg Bishop talked about it uh, back when he was writing uh, his book Project Beta, that he felt that he was being spied on, that he that someone was was tampering with his mail, and it started to. Uh, really affect him you know the paranoia was getting uh, uh, was starting to get on him but until he uh, got fed up with it so you know fuck it i have nothing i have really nothing to hide if they want to spy on me go ahead and that was it that was the solution yeah yeah huh it kind of reminds me of the movie that i saw last night that i'd like to talk to you guys about eventually what movie what movie that was the one, uh, the people versus the state of illusion. Uh, the, mm. the, uh, the producer was from Calgary originally, so he uh, he did like the Canadian um, opening of it, and he talked afterwards about uh, about making the movie. It's quite a fascinating movie. That was from the same the makers of what the bleep do we know? No, it wasn't from the makers of it. This guy did it on his own, but there was two at least two. Uh, of the scientists in What the Bleep were, were in this one. So Joe Dispenza mm. and Candace Pert were both in, in this movie too. So it was kind of along the same lines. About? About how our perception, um, you know, shapes our reality, right? And the, kind mm. of the, the science behind it and how, you know, our emotional memories color what we perceive, like even subconsciously, and how we build these walls around us and become addicted to emotions and other habits, and you know how we can change that through awareness and and repetition and practice. So it it kind of reminds me of like what you're saying about Greg Bishop. Like you can choose to you can choose to perceive what's going on in a number of different ways, right? You can get stressed about stressed out about it and upset and paranoid about it, or you can just kind of accept it and and uh, change your perception about it. I mean, that's kind of a not a very good example, but mm. it was it was really it was really a fascinating movie. And and the what was even better was uh, the guy's talk afterwards, and he talked to us about a couple crazy stories that he had happened to him. Um, I'd like to have him on. And actually, his name is Austin Vickers. It would be great to interview him about it. Yeah. So no, it also talked about how we absorb all this info from around us, right? Like like the the billions of bits of information and and we only really perceive like 0.0001% of it or something like that. So it's just, you know, how our perception built on past uh experiences or memories or whatever colors like what how we uh what 1.0001% we grab onto or whatever and perceive, right? So yeah. it was pretty it was pretty cool and and it talked about how you can change it through awareness, right? Or 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 repetition and practice and how, how things, you know, how you can change um, your perception about things. So it was, it was actually pretty fascinating. But the problem with increasing your awareness is that you may be labeled, labeled crazy by the society. Yeah. <laughs> no? Imagine you start seeing or hearing things that other people can't, 
they will think you are schizophrenic and they will start pumping uh, antipsychotic medicines to you. They'll shock the shit out of you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's more of an awareness about just how your mind works, right? And and the awareness of your process, not the content, but the process. Mm. And you know, and so it's uh, it makes sense to me. Like I've been since I've been meditating more and stuff like that, I can tell where my mind goes with stuff. So I can, I can tell that I'm just, you know, my mind is, uh, is going down this path. I can kind of watch it going down the path and I know where it's, where it's coming from. Right. So I can choose to stop thinking that way or I can, I can keep thinking that way if I want to, but I didn't used to have that awareness before. Did you guys ever read, uh, Carlos Castaneda? No, but that came up again. It keeps coming up, actually. Um, yeah, no, no I, well, I haven't. I haven't read it either. It's actually one of the reasons why I chose the name Red Pill Junkie <laughs> back mm. when, back then. But anyway, the thing about Castañeda is he talks about uh, a, a process called stopping the world, which is kind of like uh, stopping that part, that part of your mind, which is all. Uh, all the time talking, all the time trying to make the sense, make sense of the world around you, you know, trying to uh, understand ex exactly. The yeah. moment you you try to uh, quiet that part of, of your mind and only, you know, exist in pure perception, taking it all in without trying to interpret it, it's the moment when you really can uh, uh, get access to uh, altered states of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And now there's the science behind it, right? Like now they can look at your brain and watch it fire and watch it, you know, watch all these chemicals happen, these emotional chemicals happen in your brain. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah, they, they, they use MRIs uh, with people who have taken, I don't know, hallucinogenic drugs. And instead of seeing what they were thought they would want to see that, I mean, more regions of the brain firing up they actually saw a decrease in brain activity, which would mean that the brain is, uh, in, instead of making all these things, all these hallucinations, the, the brain is only uh, uh, more open to perception. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to uh, talk to some people about some hallucinogenics. I haven't done some in a long time, but uh, I've been thinking about trying some out again now that I, now that I've kind of evolved evolved a little bit from my uh my younger self um i'll be i'll be the sober chaperone for you guys you can gather some people <laughs> together to do that and i'll just stay you know nice and clean and sober and watch you guys i've had enough of that in my past that i don't need to uh to play around with anything like that anymore well i've never uh, taken none of all those uh, hallucinogenic drugs i have i've been tempted you know to maybe uh, try the ayahuasca experience but i honestly don't think i'm not sure my psyche is strong enough to endure that kind of psychic blow yeah yeah i'm definitely gonna try it in my lifetime i just don't know when or where yet it'll probably be a, a, a lot a lot of years down the road but uh, it, at some point i'd like to try it out and I think it, if you're really going to do it, you have to do it properly. You know, like Graham Hancock uh, discussed it with our friends Ben and Aaron on the Studios Universe. You have to do, uh, try to look for the uh, proper setting you, yeah. with people who really respect respect the experience, and you have to come with with 
clean intentions. You know, yeah. you're only going to take it for shits and giggles. Man, you're really looking for a bad experience. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It has to be reverence for it. You have to yeah, brands, exactly. you have to, you have to, it's like, I don't, it's like trying to uh, run the New York Marathon <laughs> and you can't even run the, run your street block. Then, yeah. man, what are you, what are you looking for? A heart attack? Yeah. I can run around the block. I think, <laughs> I don't know. I think I can. During hockey season, maybe I can. Not maybe not yeah my uh i don't know life is just too damn good right now there's too much to live for for me i don't want to play around with anything like that i just want to be aware and enjoy this life for uh all there is to offer right now i mean this is the best time to be alive in in uh, humanity's history so i want to be like fully present for it that's debatable how was your bike ride home yesterday actually i meant to ask (laughs) (laughs) it's a little wet i bet yeah, but actually, it was it was dry after after like about uh, five minutes of downpouring rain. It was dry and sunny the whole way. So did the hail hit you? A little bit. Yeah, I was looking out the window. It was hail, and I was fucking howling. Yeah, I was fully present for that ride. <laughs> Jesus. The other important news that was discussed on the Fortune blogosphere was the Bilderberg reunion. Right now, they I think they want to change their image because they uh, they made the list of attendees the attendees public. <laughs> the one name that caught my my attention was the former chief of the CIA, the General Petraeus. That was interesting. Saying, mm, I wonder what 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 is what what he is going to do there. Are they? I I don't think they're still going to tell us what they talk about in those meetings, though, are they? No, of course not. But obviously, you have to know that everything they discussed is all in our best interests, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah, it looks like now it's more and more of the uh, electronics and internet companies are starting to weasel their way in there as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, the CEO of Google is going to attend, I think, for the second time. Yeah, and Amazon. I think Amazon's got represent representation yeah. there this year as well. Yeah, Jeff Bezos is attending too. So it'd be it'd be nice nice to know what they're talking about. Well, probably the some of the things that we have already discussed. You know, the, these massive programs to gather data. How much of a tax break you get if you comply? Exactly. So, was there anyone else no- notable on the list? What else? Well, there was some discussion about the oldest primate ever found in China, which which is, according to the, the archaeologist, 55 million years old. And this primate is, is not exactly uh, part of the, 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 the line that eventually uh, uh, evolved into humans. So this, uh, but nevertheless, it was important because it pushes back the evolution of primates to, uh, to even yeah. earlier times, right? Yeah, to just, just after the dinosaurs, really, right? Exactly. So Was it that the, far? Well, the dinosaurs were, what, 65 million? and Yeah, the fact the, the dinosaur uh, 65 million years ago with the uh, crushing of the meteorite in Yucatan. And it's then 10 million years... Exactly, and 10 million years ago, you had this little primate that was no bigger than a rat, already making 
the way into this, the world. <laughs> huh. So the, well, the thing I find interesting is if we can push back the evolution of the primate line and the human genus, maybe it could give the case to all these ideas about even older civilizations that were wiped out even before, uh, you know, the traditional ones uh, in Egypt and Mesopotamia. You know, all the things that uh, Graham Hancock discusses with his books, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody uh, talks about uh, civilizations that were maybe millions of, of years old, because that's ludicrous from our current uh, scientific paradigm. Possibly even not quite human uh, civilizations once upon a time. Yeah, exactly. Maybe there was some uh, dominant species on this planet whom I achieved a, a, a technological civilization, you know, then, then we talk, we enter the fuzzy realm of all these discussions about the reptilians and all that stuff. Scotty Roberts territory. Exactly. Yeah, he's coming on, uh, coming on at the end of June, so we'll have to ask him about that. Yeah, it will be interesting. Just, uh, they, we keep discovering more and more stuff uh, about our past. Yeah, and, and there's going to be, for every for every one thing we discover, there's 10 or 100 who will never see the light of day, you know, who, will, who is going to be lost forever. Yeah. After about, well, it would seem after about 10,000 years, everything's gone. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I like this uh, TV program, After Man, I think it's, it's the title, which shows how frail our modern cities really are you know if if they are not constantly being uh, attended to they will crumble in a matter of years yeah it's hard to imagine that I, it's hard for me to imagine that it feels like our cities are like indestructible in some ways yeah we really are with the idea that our civilization is going to last forever but yeah, we yeah. Really, really don't have any guarantees about that no no, you know, definitely it's, not. It's like a child who thinks never considers its own mortality. Yeah. But we really need to... And you know, it's kind of funny because that's kind of like a new problem. You know what I mean? Like even 100 or 200 years ago, things were a lot different. People were, you know, life was a lot uh, a lot harder. You, you could be prepared for a lot more. Yeah. Even 100 years ago. You know, if like the power shut off and the water shut off, most people would have probably been okay because they had been living large portions of their lives without power and water anyway. Yeah, you will have some backup system, as it were. Exactly, like a city 150, 150 years ago, if a city got hit by a solar flare or something like that, they wouldn't even know, they wouldn't even care. Nowadays, it could throw the entire globe into total anarchy. It's an interesting paradox because the more advanced we become, the more uh, vulnerable. Vulnerable, exactly. We 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 become too. Yeah, I was just thinking today when we were having those problems because I, I I couldn't hear you guys anymore. So I reached for my phone and I was trying to text and I was trying to use the notes. I thought, well, what if what if I lost all these connections? I'd feel like on this little island all of my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so weird how how the how easily we become dependent to all yeah. these technologies, right? Yeah. To the hive. 
You're addicted yeah. to the hive, Graham. Yep. <laughs> me too. It's okay. Uh, there, which reminds me of another interesting news uh, that I read about just uh, last night about this actress of this TV series, Walking Dead, who has been arrested by the FBI for allegedly sending uh, uh, letters laced with reason to President Obama. What? Yes. I haven't did, heard of did that. you guys read about that? No. I, I, well, I, heard, I heard something about it, but what was it laced with? Ryzen. Uh, Ryzen. I, sorry, oh, sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. Arrested? I don't know what it's called, but yeah, that, that's it's dangerous for sure. So yeah, she's going to get you, probably hung. I don't know. Maybe uh, uh, she would. She could allege to to have uh, mental problems. Here, there we go back to the the idea about how society <laughs> labels a, a dissonant behavior. But I, the, the, the thing that I found ironic is how The Walking Dead is about the crumbling of society, crumbling of uh, the, structures, the structures of authority. And now this uh, actress, <laughs> he, he tried to apparently attack the major, the, the, the major the, uh, figure of authority in the world, President of the United States. Hmm. Is she just really trying to play her role or something? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't read much about it. I think Lauren Coleman is is the, covering the story on his blog, Twilight Language. I wonder what Stanley Krippner would have to say about something like that. We don't. Well, I don't about. Um, I don't know. People almost like snapping. Like you'd think she would. She had it pretty good. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, success, su successful and rich. Why? Why is she doing that? She she has destroyed not only her career but her entire life and the life yeah. of her family. Yeah, that's crazy. I wonder what the conspiracy theorists will say about that too. Some sort of uh, a false flag attack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what Alec Jones is saying. I'm sure. Yeah, Manchurian yeah. candidate. Exactly. So yeah, I wonder what Stanley Krippner thinks about. Um, how connected our society is. Like it reminds me of in Micah's book, The UFO Singularity, how they talked about the similarities between our, our worldwide web and, and the Eastern philosophy of connected consciousness. Yes, like maybe we're making some type of uh, electronic uh, prosthetic for something we might have had uh, in a more natural way a long time ago. Because Stanley Krippner's been around for a while. I think yeah, he's, well, uh, he, he would have had an interesting life for sure because he would have, he, he's been around since, like, I, I want to say, like, the 40s, 50s. He was born, born in 32. Yeah, yeah. so he's, he was rocking, you know, back in the day. He's seen a yeah. lot of things happen. Smoking grass with a grateful death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm halfway through his book, uh, Rolling Thunder, there. It's pretty good. Yeah, he talks about some of those days. Yeah, yeah, it's been a pretty fascinating book. I'm I'm really uh, enjoying it too. I just finished the sweat lodge part and uh, and the uh, shamanic dreaming, which uh, which I'm just fascinated by. So I'm I'm going to a sweat lodge tomorrow actually. So that's kind of appropriate. I think two days before we interview uh, Stanley mm. Krippner. So I, that should be interesting. Archie, aren't, yeah, you're going to sweat lodge tomorrow, aren't you? Yep. Yep. Oof. Have you been to one before? 
Yeah, it's it's been it's great. Sweat it out, buddy. Betcha, I'm gonna sweat it all out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we have some of those here in Mexico too. Well, the traditional ones are called temascales, and they're like I don't know, uh, uh, like earthen igloos with only one uh, hole in in the ceiling, uh, and uh, people get inside and uh, take the, all the clothes off. And they put on the water, uh, uh, water on hot, hot coals, and it's a well, it's a religious ceremony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is in the native culture too. Yeah, or in Canadian native culture too. Yeah. Mm. So I what? once, I once had a very interesting experience in a sauna. I wrote about it uh, in my blog. I, I call it my Mothman moment. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever read it. No, tell us about it. Well, it was back, uh, I think, in 2009 when John Keel passed away. I think 2009 or 2010, I can't remember. Well, anyway, the, everybody was talking about him, were pay, paying respects to him, uh, writing a lot of eulogies. And obviously, if you talk about uh, John Keel, you have to talk about uh, the Mothman and his book, The Mothman Prophecies. Yeah. And when what I was uh, I was thinking about all this uh, in a sauna in, in a sports club I was a member of, uh, back in those days. I was all all alone, and you know how these uh, saunas operate. That they have I don't know uh, a timer that will every uh, two minutes or so uh, a, a steam of vapor will uh, come out. You know to keep the temperature. Yeah. But. Uh, and those uh, steam uh, discharges will only last like 30 seconds or so. But when I was thinking about John Keel, the the steam uh, discharge started, and instead of lasting only 30 seconds, it, start, uh, it went on and on. And at first, I say I, I I told myself, okay, I can I can endure this. I'm I'm used to hot temperatures. I I kind of like hot temperatures. I I can man this up, but eventually the goddamn thing kept going, and I I was I, I, my my skin felt like felt like I, I it was on fire. My my ears hurt, and I. And I really got scared. I think I thought, man, I gotta get out of here, or maybe I'm going to suffer a heart heart attack. And the moment I uh, I st stood up, and you know, you start to move on, on uh, in an environment full of uh, hot steam, every everything hurts. Yeah, yeah. The, the moment I touched the handle of the door, that's the moment the steam stopped. <laughs> that's like, crazy. Yeah, the light was. What the hell? Yeah, I think actually in Krippner's book he was saying that you have to, that he had the same sensation of his skin being on fire. Yeah, it's like exactly what he described. And he had yeah. to, he said he decided that he just had to embrace it and he breathed it in and he accepted the fire. Yeah, well, I don't know. This could, obviously, a skeptic would uh, hear this kind of talk and will dismiss it as all a coincidence, but I can't help thinking that there was some tricks, trickterish 
aspect to all this, to all these, you know, to yeah, that yeah. They, there was someone there teasing me or ter testing me, you know, to yeah, see me yeah. back in. I obviously failed the test. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe you passed. Yeah. But that's, it was interesting. Yeah, that's very creepy. Well, on that note, I suppose we uh, we might as well get to our interview with Stanley Krippner. He's a, a PhD a psychologist. So uh, we'll catch you catch you next time, Red and Graham. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy the interview with Krippner. for our interview with Stanley Krippner, uh, as promised. Uh, with me, as always, is Graham. How's it going, Graham? Hey, I'm doing excellent. I'm really excited here to talk to Stanley. Okay, well, one thing, uh, let me say first, the book, uh, thanks a lot for the book, Stanley, Rolling Thunder. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm uh, I'm of native descent myself, so I, it was a really good read. It was really eye-opening even for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so... One one question about about the book I had was uh, um, the how much did uh, Rolling Thunder talk to you about the the meaning of the seven pointed purple star? Well, of course, the seven pointed the seven points were sort of his logo. He had the seven points on his turban, which he wore on very formal occasions, and he used it from time to time in his ceremonies and around the house. And to him, it was representation of the seven sisters, the Pleiades, as Western astronomers call them, which have a whole interesting history, not only to the Greeks, but, you know, there's a tribe in Africa who claims that uh, they were star people, that their ancestors actually came from the Pleiades. And... They had a map of the Pleiades way before Europeans came into contact with them. And those maps, as far as I know, have been pretty well verified as being ancient maps. And they do pretty well correspond to the position of the Pleiades, which means that they either had sharp eyes or they had very good intuitive skills. So there's much more to the Pleiades than that, but that gives you some uh, overview and gives your listeners some overview as to the Pleiades and how Rolling Thunder connected with the seven points. So, so in your mind, was it did Rolling Thunder believe that perhaps the ancestors came from there, or that they were did they look more as the spirit world was was there? More that the spirit world was there. Now, of course, this African tribe has a legend that the ancestors really came from there. And we can sort of stretch a point and say that we're all stardust because 
we're made out of the same stuff, basically, that stars are made out of. We all go back to the Bing Bang. And all energy and matter and spirit actually comes from that Big Bang trillions of years ago. So I look at a lot of these statements metaphorically. But let's get back to Rolling Thunder, as we discussed in our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. And, of course, he believed in the spirit world. And to him, the spirit world was not so different than the ordinary world because we're interacting with the spirit world all of the time. Our ancestors are with us. The spirits are with us. Our past lives are with us. And to him, you know, everything was made out of one piece. And it's just the Western thought that either denies the spirit world or separates the spirit world from the ordinary world and sets up these false distinctions, which isn't really part of Native American way of looking at things, where body, mind, and spirit are all interconnected. Yeah, yeah, the Natives, they more looked at it as... um as being one with the earth and that, that, uh, you know, sickness in, in the earth would be, would be related as sickness in humans. Absolutely. And Rolling Thunder made a big point of that. We've got to clean up our act personally. We've got to clean up our act ecologically and, uh, our survival depends upon that. Now, a lot of Native American healing emphasizes balance, emphasizes wholeness, equilibrium. And when a person gets sick or when a planet gets sick, it's out of balance. And, of course, there was this marvelous film some years ago, Kiwanisquatsi, which is a Native American tribal world, meaning world out of balance. And the film shows how messed up this poor world of ours is with all of the global warming, the desertification, the pollution of the air, the pollution of the oceans, and the warring factions on the earth. This is really an earth out of balance. And Rolling Thunder devoted his life to trying to get some balance back into the earth so that uh, people could be at one with nature and a part of nature and not kill each other off, kill nature off, and go on the rampage that's been so ruinous to the human species. Now, you were with him through a lot of that, right? You've known, you knew him for quite uh, quite many years. Oh, good heavens, yes. I knew him for a couple of decades, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and so I was with him during the thick of some of this. Now, I was interested in the story about how, how Rolling Thunder kind of came into his power. And I actually thought there there almost seems to be a correlation between that story and, and some of the more modern stories of uh, like, let's say contactees or abductees who end up, how, who end up having these experiences and then they end up getting into energy healing or, or different types of spirituality. Have you ever thought about that at all? Well, yes, this is uh, actually a very common theme with uh, healers today. And it's not so much of a common theme with Western physicians, although it is more so with Western psychotherapists. A number of Western psychotherapists go through some sort of mental illness themselves or have mental illness in the family, and this gets them interested in becoming psychotherapists and helping other people. Every once in a while, we do have a physician who went through an illness 
or had illness in the family, and this is what triggered their interest in becoming a doctor or a chiropractor or a naturopath or a nurse or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you see this to the extreme with indigenous healers and shamans and medicine people. Very often they have a tragic event in their life, as Rolling Thunder did, or some spontaneous healing of a person who needed help or a call from the ancestors in a dream or in a vision, very, very dramatic ways of being called to heal. So the one thing I also wanted to ask you about before I forget is um, you've been into the dream lab work. You had, you had all these studies going on way, way back. So did you ever follow the work of like Russell Targ or Hal Putoff or even uh, Robert Monroe at the Monroe Institute? Oh, of course, I knew all of those people. I still know <laughs> Russell Targ and Hal Putoff. I read them frequently. And I was actually one of the first people who Robert Monroe told about his out-of-body experience. <laughs> really? And I took him seriously. He had been to University of California, Los Angeles, as a guest of a friend of his in the psychiatry department, And he was telling the people in the psychiatry department about his out-of-body experiences. And they listened politely in silence. (laughs) And after he was finished, he said, well, now, gentlemen, there were no women in the group in those days. Well, gentlemen, what do you think of these stories? And there was dead silence. And then finally, one of the psychiatrists spoke and said, well, Mr. Monroe, to be very frank with you, we all think that you're schizophrenic. <laughs> well, now they wouldn't get away with that because we've studied out-of-body experiences. We know that many people have these experiences, and almost none of these people are schizophrenic. And when they are schizophrenic, they have very, very bizarre out-of-body experiences, what we call depersonalization. And... For the most part, these are experiences that they can learn something from, and they can be very illuminative and illustrious. Rolling Thunder, of course, had a lot of -of out-of-body experiences, and he did this at will whenever he wanted to travel to some part of the earth or whenever he wanted to go into the spirit world or whenever he wanted to check on somebody that was uh, ailing that was at quite a distance. Yeah, but they didn't, they had a, he had a different, uh, how did he describe it as like we'd call it today an NDE or astral travel? How, what did Rolling Thunder consider it? He called it journeying. Hmm. Yeah, there was, a, actually I enjoyed the story in the book about um, uh, where the, the girl Midge uh, had the car accident. That was such a sad story because these two women were in the car and they went off the road. Their car simply went out of control. The brakes didn't work, and they were on treacherous highways in California. And one of the girls was killed immediately, and the other one ended up in the hospital, and she was in a coma. And one of the nurses said, I want to bring in rolling thunder because none of the things the doctors here have done has helped bring her out of the coma. So rolling thunder came in, and he immediately spotted this is a case of a lost soul and he sat down closed his eyes and he took a journey off to the site of the accident and as he tells the story there she was there her soul was sitting on a rock and he said you have to come back with me and join your body and she said oh no i'm waiting for my friend i promised my friend that i would wait here for her 
And Rolling Thunder said, no, your friend is with the Great Spirit, but your time has not yet come. You've got to come back to your body. Oh, no, no, I'm going to be here waiting for my friend. Then Rolling Thunder called upon his friend, the North Wind, and the North Wind blew her soul back right into her body, and she opened her eyes. The nurses got very, very excited. They called him the doctor, and the doctor said, get that old Indian out of here. He fell asleep. He's no no help whatsoever. (laughs) Well, it was just as good that they sent Rolling Thunder out because the woman told a story without Rolling Thunder being in the room, and her story was very similar to his. She said, you know, my friend was floating up into the sky. And I said, please come back, please come back. And my friend said, no, I will not be seeing you on this earth anymore. I'll see you in the next world. And she said, no, I'm going to sit on this rock until you come back. And she said, I sat on this rock for such a long time. And then I felt this wind and I couldn't hang on to the rock. And this wind just blew me away. And here I am. I'm in this strange hospital room. I'm back in my body. So here we have a story that now is verified by the experiencer herself. Same thing, more or less, than what Rolling Thunder told us. That's fascinating. It reminds me, uh, as we were just speaking about the Monroe Institute, how they have uh, they have a program there. I think it's called, uh, like once you get up to the le- the upper levels, it's called Soul Rescue or something like that. Very similar to, to how, uh, how RT does it. Yes, they do. They have their Soul Rescue program. Program and of course it's based upon the soul retrieval program. Oh right, right. That not only the RT did, but many shamans from different traditions around the world do something like that. And Michael Harner's shamanic counseling training involves a whole course on soul retrieval. And one of his students, Sandra Ingerman, has written a very, very good book about it. And of course, Western psychiatry doesn't take soul retrieval seriously. But the shamans and the medicine people have been doing this for years. And Fawn Journeyhawk is another Native American healer who I know. And for decades, she's been helping veterans of all of the wars the United States has been in, Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, who have post-traumatic stress disorder, go back to the place where they had this horrible accident or catastrophe or murder or killing and find their soul and then they bring their soul back to the body and then this helps them to recover from their disorder and again this is not approved by western psychiatry but you know it works and as rolling thunder said if anything works i'm going to use it <laughs> uh, yeah that's one thing <clears throat> no sorry that's one thing shamans are uh, or shamans are are famous for is their their willingness to to open up to new things and tr- and try try whatever's willing to work. Yes, uh, shamanism is very open ended, and they are not doctrinaire. Shamanism, of course, is not a religion. Religions tend to be very closed minded and closed ended, but shamanism is a spiritual practice, and being a spiritual practice, they can pull in from any tradition that they want as long as it's in service of the greater good and in service of the people that they're trying to help. I also like the, uh, the correlation between uh, rolling thunder, his uh, dream work and what the shamanism, you know, consider uh, what is it called dream work? And then comparing that to some of like Stephen LeBurge's work in, 
and lucid dreaming or being able to uh, obtain lucidity in order to, to heal things? Or do you see any correlations there? Or have you ever tried uh, like lucid dreaming yourself? Well, I have spontaneous lucid dreaming experiences once in a while. But the thing that most people don't realize is that shamans from around, or shamans, either pronunciation is correct, shamans from around the world often engage in what we would call lucid dreaming. Now, right. they've done this for the millennia. They've done this for probably tens of thousands of years. And Charles Laughlin is a friend of mine. He's written a whole book about shamanic dream work and about how shamans did lucid dreaming in a variety of societies as well communing with the gods is just an excellent description of this. We often connect lucid dreaming with the Tibetan traditions, the dreaming in the clearer light, and that is a very venerable tradition that also goes back. But that's in turn derived from Ban shamanism in Tibetan parts of what is today is China. So, you know, some people say there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and lucid dreaming is something that was a big breakthrough in dream research. And a lot of dream scientists didn't believe it. They thought these people were lying. Right. And then Stephen LeBurge, as you noted before, he actually hooked people up to an electroencephalograph machine, said, okay, when you start to have a lucid dream, you move your eyes in a square, and that will show up on the tracings and they did and the tracings showed that they were still asleep but their eyes were moving not up and down as they ordinarily move during a dream but they were moving in a square shape so there we had some definite evidence that lucid dreaming actually existed and that people were wide awake while they were completely asleep fascinating and you did some some dream studies uh based on uh well you had somebody sleeping for uh six nights during grateful dead concerts and you you showed uh images on the screens and tried to do some research that way yes that was just one small part of our research we actually had 200 nights in our studies and that's been published actually in a hundred different articles and three books and people can go to the website and look that up. They can go to Amazon.com and order our book, Dream Telepathy. But the Grateful Dead study was only for six nights, and yet that's gotten more publicity than any of the other <laughs> longer experiments we did. And Jerry Garcia suggested that. He said, you know, we're going to be doing a program at Port Chester, New York, at the Capitol Theater, and maybe we can do a telepathy study at the same time. So, sure enough, the uh, people at the Porchester Theater were enjoying the concert, and all of a sudden there was a sign on the screen, you are about to take part in a telepathy experiment. <laughs> a man by the name of Malcolm Besant is asleep at the Maimonides Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn. You are going to see a picture. Try to send this picture to him by telepathy. And at that moment, our research volunteer flipped a coin, and heads meant one picture, tails meant another picture. And then he put the picture into the slide projector that flashed on the screen, and then the Grateful Dead talked about the picture, the colors in the picture, the activities in the picture. While Malcolm Besant, who was an English psychic in our laboratory, was dreaming. And then we had neutral outside observers 
try to match the pictures with the dreams after everything was over, and they were able to do so with accuracy that was far above what you'd expect by chance. Now, you probably know that there's a Grateful Dead archive in University of Santa Cruz, California library, and they will eventually have 22 rooms devoted to the Grateful Dead experience, and one of those rooms will have some artifacts from that Grateful Dead experiment. With the actual pictures that were being used and the uh, article that we wrote up about it and some eyewitness accounts of people who were there. There's a Grateful Dead cover band, by the way, that's going to be playing in that same theater next year, and they're going to try to do a small version of that dream telepathy experiment. Oh, really? That's amazing. Are you going to be a part of it? or? Oh, yes, and I can't say any more about it than that until <laughs> we get everything settled, but, you know, it'll be interesting to sort of revisit that whole project again. Yeah, no no doubt, because, uh, well, the, the Grateful Dead were really close friends with, uh, turned out to be, or ended up being close friends with uh, Rolling Thunder in the end. Oh, yeah, well, they certainly were, and this, of course, is how I met Rolling Thunder. I met him through Mickey Hart, because every time I saw Mickey Hart, he would say, you've got to meet Rolling Thunder sometime, you got to meet Rolling Thunder sometime. I said, fine, I'm open to it, and... I only visit California once or twice a year, so you've got to figure out the timing. So this is when I was working on dreams in the Maimonides Dream Laboratory in Brooklyn, New York. So one time I flew to San Francisco, and when I came to San Francisco, I would stay at Mickey's Hart's Ranch, which at that time was in Nevada, California, and he had sent a private plane to pick up Rolling Thunder, so we finally met. And how was, uh, what were your impressions when you first met him? Well, I was at a Grateful Dead concert, and during the intermission, I saw this striking Native American man with beads and Native American feathers walking down the aisle with a beautiful woman on either arm, and I thought, this must be rolling thunder. <laughs> so I walked up to him, and I said, you must be rolling thunder. He said, you must be Dr. Krippner. And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, spawning a, spawning a couple of decades. You bet, absolutely. And now you're still actually, you're still close friends with uh, with his grandson? Yes, I'll be seeing his grandson again in just a few days. We have ongoing projects, and now, of course, we're trying to give publicity to our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. And Rolling Thunder's grandson, Studion Morningstar, is a very, very talented web designer, and he's a computer whiz, and he's working for a company in Boise and is uh, sort of doing something with computers and book design that hasn't been done before. It's very, very ingenious. So he's sort of carrying on the shamanic tradition electronically, you might say.
So we, we heard your a uh, couple of your discussions with Christopher Ryan on his uh, Tangentially Speaking podcast. Um, great discussions. And you guys have traveled all over the world. And and I'm just curious, like you've got all this experience, all these fascinating things you guys have been, you know, uh, researching and discovering. And and yet you're, you're more popular in pretty much everywhere else in the world. I, you know, compared to your uh, popularity in, in North America. I mean, do you, do you attribute anything in our culture to that at all? Like, what, what does that mean anything to you? Well, I think there, you have something there because, um, the topic of shamanism and native American healing, I have found is actually better known and more popular in Western Europe than it is in the United States. I went with Rolling Thunder to Western Europe, and we did some programs together. And he had much larger crowds in Europe than he did in the United States. And when I speak about shamanism in Europe and about Native American healing, um, again, I get much larger turnouts, much larger audiences than in the United States. And I hope... Well, no, I was going to say that... uh, Ruling Thunder was very much at home in places like Denmark, Sweden, and Germany, and Austria, and was very, very well received. And uh, people really listened to him very, very carefully because they thought this is our chance to learn about Native American traditions, Native American healing, and also see what we can do to help out Native Americans who are being oppressed because there's so much poverty among Native American tribes in the United States. Now I'm happy to say things are better, thanks to Rolling Thunder, thanks to the American Indian Movement, thanks to a lot of self-help groups on the reservations, and also thanks to some of the practices that Rolling Thunder put a stop to. Back when Rolling Thunder was active, it was not uncommon for for social workers to take a Native American baby and give it to a white group of parents who didn't have any children, thinking that the child would be better off. And then the child grew up not knowing anything about his Native American tradition. And also, Rolling Thunder, back when I first knew him, was trying to protect the pinyon trees, the pine nut trees. They were a source of food and protein for Native Americans. And he noted that this was against the law, of course, but bulldozers would come in and tear up the trees so that that land could be used for grazing land for cattle. And he protested, 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 and finally he and his group put sand in the engines of the tractors, and so the tractors wouldn't run the next morning. (laughs) Well, you know, both those practices are now stopped, and you will never guess who stopped them. What president of the United States put an end to this? One of the best friends that Native Americans ever had was Richard Nixon. And Nixon, despite all of his flaws and foibles and actual sins, was very, very helpful to Native Americans because one of his coaches in high school was Native American. And he said he learned a lot of leadership from that Native American uh, coach. Didn't learn enough, but he learned something. And at least he learned enough to be a good friend of Native Americans when he became president. Oh, yeah, but also uh, um, I'm a member of the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of the American Indian, 
And they recently had an entire article devoted to how Richard Nixon was such a good friend of Native Americans. So, so also, there's a there's sort of a funny story while we're talking about Nixon. Rock Scully was one of the road managers of the Grateful Dead, and he was going to prison not for anything that he had done wrong, but he refused to help the uh, government prosecute a marijuana dealer who was a friend of his, and so they put him in jail because he was not cooperating, and. So Rolling Thunder was called upon to do a goodbye ceremony for Rock Scully, and I was there at the time, and so Rolling Thunder smudged us all with the ceremony. And then he made a prediction. He says, Rock, you're going to have an experience in jail that you will never have in the ordinary world. And sure enough, Rock Scully went to jail, and who should be in this cell right next to him but H.R. Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff who had been put in prison because of the illegal activities that he participated in when Nixon was president. <laughs> and the two of them actually became friends, and Haldeman was the only one of Nixon's staff who admitted that he had done something wrong. He wrote about this in his autobiography, and I think that maybe his contact with Rock Scully humanized him a little bit because his kids were very thrilled and excited to find out that their father was now a friend of the road manager of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah. So so speaking of our North American culture there compared to the rest of the world, do you think it's going to open up at all, or do you think it has been opening up? It certainly has is, is opened up to Native Americans. There's much more of a visibility now of Native Americans and as I said before, the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., and its branch in New York City are bringing in, good heavens, hundreds of thousands of people a year. Their museum is very accurate. Their exhibits are constantly changing, and people are learning a lot from that museum, from its publications. But also they're learning a lot from Native Americans who are giving lectures, who are sharing their knowledge, and who are taking people on tours of their reservations and who are uh, contributing to American culture in many different ways. So what about the what about more of uh, opening up in a parapsychological type of way or or opening up to more of this uh, you know duality of consciousness and this type of thing? Well, it's good news and it's bad news. First of all, the bad news is parapsychology is not getting much money, not getting much funding. So people are not opening up their pocketbooks to support parapsychology. But it's opening up in that more people are reporting parapsychological experiences, and one is finding more articles about parapsychology in magazines and even associated topics, especially in the field of physics magazines and biological magazines, because many of the descriptions are right out of the pages parapsychology. Like when you read the biological magazines about cells that are separated at a distance and they're still mirroring each other in terms of their behavior, although there's no physical way they could be in contact. Mm -hmm. And in quantum physics, you have Again, groups of uh, subatomic particles that are separated, and yet it seems as if they're still in contact with each other. So a lot is going on that doesn't call itself parapsychology, but certainly 
is part of the new emerging paradigm that there's a much closer connection between atoms, between cells, between people, between other organisms and people than uh, we've suspected. Yeah, and it seems like uh, that those connections aren't bound by the laws of physics as we know them either. Yeah, not by the laws of physics we knew today, but I think it's only a matter of time that the laws of physics will expand and will have a lot to teach us about what we call embeddedness and about what David Bohm called the implicate order, the underlying order that unifies things, which is beneath the explicate order, a term he used to describe the surface order where things seem to be separate and distinct from each other. But, you know, Native Americans knew about this unity thousands of years ago, and a quantum physicist by the name of David Peet wrote an entire book called Blackfoot Physics, talking about how the philosophy of the Blackfoot Indians is very, very similar to the postulates of quantum physics. And we've got a lot of that on our book, The Voice of Ruling Country, because Sidian Morningstar has been reading quantum physics since he was a kid. And so he has course, early on grasped the similarities between quantum physics and what Native Americans had been talking about for thousands of years. So, Stanley, you seem to be able to walk this middle ground um, better than better than most, I would say, after listening to you for, for a while now, about uh, being like a healthy skeptic, yet also being very open-minded and, and, uh, and non-judgmental about all kinds of phenomena. Like, did do you ever get sick of having to to prove things to our, you know, kind of dogmatic scientific community? No, because I don't think that anything in this field can be proved. Uh, first of all, nothing in science can be proved. Science is always open-ended and open-minded. Uh, proof is a word that I don't even use. You can say something is demonstrated, something right. is repeated, something is verified. But I tell my students, don't use the word proof unless you're talking about logic mathematics or yeah. whiskey that's a good yeah. point so do you, do you ever get sick of trying to to demonstrate something then if the challenge comes from somebody who is well informed and asks a sensible question no i don't i i enjoy the repartee right right okay sometimes i i struggle with that myself like feeling um, like i've listened to uh some of the skeptical podcasts and this and that, and, and I got, but I got a little bit dis, uh, disenfranchised with the whole thing after the, you know, na name calling and kind of just making fun of, uh, you know, people who have seen UFOs or this and that, and you know, and, I, and I've seen some things myself, and and I, sometimes I feel like if I'm too skeptical, it kind of holds me back in a way. I don't know if that's something to do with some sort of placebo effect or something like that, but I'm almost, uh, you know, I almost feel like. Like it's it's it, it's going to become easier just to open open right up. Well, you know, this name calling and ridicule is really not part of the scientific method. Right. And so people who engage in that are really undermining science, and uh, they're really deviating from the true scientific path, which of course has to be open-minded and has to exhibit a willingness to try things out, to test things, 
And then if they're verified, fine. If they're not verified, fine. But either way, we've added a little bit to human knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Rolling Thunder, by the way, was very cautious about matters like this. People knew that if they took his photograph without his permission, very often the photograph simply would not turn out. But he would not accept the challenge. He would just let things flow in their ordinary way. And one year he was visited by a very well-known photographer who wanted desperately to take Rolling Thunder's photo, but he knew he wouldn't do it without Rolling Thunder's permission. And he also had a life-threatening disease, which is the main reason he came to see Rolling Thunder. So Rolling Thunder worked with him for three months, and the life-threatening disease, the blood infection, completely disappeared. And so the photographer was just about ready to leave the camp, and a young man brought in from off the road a paper sack, and the paper sack was a young eagle. And the eagle was squawking and yelling and screaming, and he said, Rolling Thunder, what do I do with this eagle? And Rolling Thunder said, give him to me. And Rolling Thunder took the sack, and immediately the eagle quieted down. Rolling Thunder took the eagle out of the paper sack, held the eagle, and the eagle was very compliant, very quiet. And then he said to my photographer friend, now you can take your picture. <laughs> so he took the picture of Rolling Thunder and the Eagle, and that picture ended up on the cover of our book. Ah, oh, that's the one. Okay, that's a great picture. And then the Eagle flew away. The Eagle had been healed, and off it went, back to the nest. Wow. It reminds me of that story of him in the book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, again, how he was running through the forest howling with the coyotes and actually, like, you know, addressing the coyotes there face to face and talking to them. Was it coyotes or was it uh, coyotes? Coyotes. Yeah. This yeah. experience, I actually was with him myself. So this, wow. in this case, I can speak from direct experience. I visited Rolling Thunder several times in Nevada, of course, and on one time it was late at night, and he told him to come with me because he had some business to do. So we went into the place where his land merged into the forest and he started to howl and yowl which didn't surprise me because I've seen Rolling Thunder do a number of interesting, interesting things and in this instance however a pack of coyote came out of the woods and they were howling also and the leader of the pack walked right up to Rolling Thunder and it was just a few feet away from me of course, I wasn't uh, terrified or afraid. I knew that Rolling Thunder knew what he was doing. And the two of them howled and yelped back and forth at each other. And then the coyote led his pack back into the woods. I <laughs> said, R.T., what was that all about? Said, well, we have to renew our contract. I <laughs> told the coyote that we wouldn't let any of our people shoot their coyote pack if they wouldn't eat any of the chickens in our chicken coop. <laughs> And, you know, I've talked with many people who lived on his land, and never once did they say that the coyotes had broken into the chicken coop and gobbled up chicken. Never once. Even though that was, that was common practice in Nevada. They had to be on their 
guard against coyotes. So that was the promise that Rolling Thunder and the coyotes made to each other, and I actually saw them renew it. Wow. He also seemed to be somewhat of a, a prophet, too. I, I believe in the book it, it's said he, he left California or certain part of California right before the big quake. Oh, good heavens, yes. And again, I was part of that. I went down to one of his birthday parties in Santa Cruz, and we had a great time. We had buffalo meat. We had uh, uh, succotash. Uh, we had drumming and singing. It was a great birthday party. And then a few days after that, he told his host, you know, I've got to get out of here. Something really bad is going to happen to Santa Cruz. So Roaring Thunder and his friends got into the van and drove back to Nevada. And sure enough, the Loma Crater earthquake hit Santa Cruz, creating devastation to the very area where Rolling Thunder had been living. And so... Again, that's an instance where he knew when to get out and get moving. also uh, quoted as talking about uh, the Vikings and the Asians both coming to North America before Columbus and it's kind of funny because I, I think I remember reading a story in, in Discover Magazine a little while back about them actually finding artifacts that might lend to the, the fact that the, the Chinese or some sort of oriental culture was here first. I've read a great deal about this. I think it pretty well verified that the Vikings came to America before to what today is America before Columbus did. Fewer people know about the Chinese, and there was a Chinese expedition that actually came to what today is California and actually sailed down much of the Pacific coast, leaving artifacts behind, talking to people, taking notes, examining the vegetation, the animals, etc. And and then they left. Now, you know, this was an interesting way of doing things. The Europeans came, and they came to conquer. They were going to take that land and possess it for Spain, for Portugal, to England, for the Netherlands, for France, whatever. The Chinese did things in a very different way. They came as visitors, as neighbors. They came to learn. I wish that the Chinese would have stayed a little longer and would have prevented the Europeans from creating the devastation that they did. You know, the Europeans, inadvertently, it wasn't their conscious desire, but they brought disease. It was the biggest ex mass extinction of human beings in North America. Uh, maybe as many as 10 million Native Americans were killed from smallpox, from measles, from... Uh, whooping cough and other diseases because the Native Americans couldn't produce the antibodies. 
Now, the Chinese didn't have that much of a problem because they were much closer in ancestry to the Native Americans because of the crossover on the Bering Straits that happened, you know, thousands of years ago. And probably, in addition to that crossover, uh, boats that made the trip to the Americas, even maybe as far as South America. And so you didn't have the death by microorganisms as a result of the Asian infusion, as you certainly did on behalf of the European invasion. Hmm. Is there much similar similarity between shamanism and some ancient Chinese medicine? Is there like a link there at all? Ancient Chinese medicine actually originated in shamanism, uh, from Taoist shamanism and from Ban shamanism, both. And so you could say that the roots are there in shamanism. And it's especially true of Taoist shamanism. And one of the foremost teachers of Taoism and Taoist practices is Kenneth Cohen, who wrote a nice little blurb for our book saying that Rolling Thunder was the most traditional Indian medicine man that he had ever met. Well, Kenneth Cohen actually taught Tai Chi and Qigong and Taoist practices and Taoist shamanism at Rolling Thunder's camp because Rolling Thunder felt that the Taoists were very, very similar in their philosophy and their practice to Native Americans. Rolling Thunder was very careful in terms of who he would let teach because he didn't want a lot of authoritarian religions to come in and, uh, shall we say, pollute the atmosphere of his camp. But he felt that the Taoists were very close to nature, very open-minded, and had some good health practices and so that's why he let the Taoism classes go on when Kenneth Cohen came to visit. The other thing I wanted to ask about um, Rolling Thunder was he seemed to be uh, on the cutting edge a little bit of uh, of some nutritional stuff. Like he, he apparently he was against white flour and sugar there for a little bit. And it's funny how now and, and you know now that's really gaining ground in our culture, and people are uh, going on all these you know diets like basically anything white is bad. Oh, you bet. Rolling Thunder uh, was actually a victim of sugar, and he got diabetes from too much sugar, He so he found out too late. But in the book, he really comes out against people taking too much sugar because he pointed out how it could lead to diabetes, and it did in his case because in the book, we tell the story about how Mickey Hart and I went up to actually save Rolling Thunder's life. He was dying from gangrene in his leg, and it was connected to the diabetes, which has been untreated. Wow. And it was a very, very sad trip, and at first he was not going to go with us because he was just going to stay at his place and die there. <laughs> and we had to talk him into getting into Mickey Hart's plane, which he had borrowed from Bill Graham, the rock impresario, and get him back to the California where they did an emergency operation and cut off his leg but saved his life and gave him many, many happy years as a result of that visit. So he said, don't eat too much white sugar or the same thing will happen to you that happened to me. Hmm. And, of course, he was very much in favor of eating a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruit, and he was not a vegetarian. 
He said, if you're going to be a vegetarian, make sure you get enough protein, eat rice and beans. And, of course, when he would uh, eat meat, he would give blessings to the animals because he said that the animals are part of our relations and we have to treat them in honor, even when they eat their flesh. And so he had a special prayer to honor animals and chickens and other birds and even sea creatures that had given their lives to nurture uh, human beings. But that's part of the unity of nature that Rolling Thunder was always talking about. Yeah. So, Stanley, you've had quite a few experiences uh, uh, yourself of all these things. I mean, I, I know that I thought I heard you say in an interview that you, that you were not fully convinced of, of, uh, of the afterlife or, you know, or um, our soul sort of surviving after physical death. But then I also, in your book, you, you talked about hearing spotted fawn's words um, the day she died. Oh, that was very point, very, very poignant. Rolling Thunder's wife, Spotted Fawn, was a very good friend of mine. She was a wonderful human being. She really held the community together when Rolling Thunder was gone. And she developed cancer, and Native Americans got free medical treatment at the Presidio Army Hospital in San Francisco. And I would go down several times a week, and I'd do hypnosis to help alleviate the pain. And so at least you could have a peaceful death. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Mexico for a conference. And when I was in Mexico, I had a very unusual dream of Rolling Thunder in his truck driving back to Nevada from California. And I said, R.T., why are you leaving? Why are you leaving? And he turned his head. And I looked in the back, and there was a coffin. I knew that was the coffin of his wife's spotted form. And then the next night, I woke up suddenly, and there was this voice of spotted form saying, I came to say goodbye. I'm not going to see you on this earth again. And that was the very night that spotted form died. Wow. So does that not convince you? So all that I can say is that's pretty good evidence. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were asking me about John Kennedy's assassination. Yeah, and that good. ties in a little bit with the book because Rolling Thunder had a great admiration for Senator Ted Kennedy, who had done a lot on behalf of the Indians, and he had uh, very little respect for most U.S. politicians. But Ted Kennedy was one person who had really um, drafted some legislation it was extremely helpful. But years before that time, I did have a unusual experience with psilocybin, which is a substance very similar to LSD. I took it in a legal experiment, and I had a very exciting time with a lot of uh, visual images, a lot of musical accompaniment, a lot of scenes from... Uh, uh, my own life, a lot of insights into the workings of the universe. And then I had this very, very tragic image of Abraham Lincoln, who was in silhouette with his head bowed and a gun at the base of his head and somebody shouting out the president had been shot. And then Lincoln's face morphed into that of Kennedy. And again, there was a rifle and somebody was saying the president has been shot. And sure enough, a few months later, Kennedy was dead. 
Wow. So you can call that what you can, what you want. It might have been coincidence. It might have been precognition, but it's sad to say it came true. Yeah. One thing I'd been meaning to ask you is, do you think that the, the placebo effect lends more to the idea of consciousness being something generated by the brain or or the brain simply being some sort of a conduit? The the ability for for the consciousness to be tricked into healing the body? Well, you, it, you can make a case either way. All I can say is there is now a whole different paradigm about consciousness. Holding the consciousness is the basis of all existence, and that the brain is basically a conduit for consciousness. It shapes and forms consciousness according to that individual's personality, hopes, and desires. And, of course, this is not in accordance with mainstream science, but it's an interesting point of view, and several worthwhile books are being coming out on it. And, again, that would explain the uh, uh, parapsychological phenomenon that we've been talking about. There is this unity, and it's very much in consort with Native American way of thinking. So to... Uh, uh, to get back to the question at hand, the placebo effect actually goes back to Native American shamans and shamans from other parts of the world in a very interesting way. Just think back 50, 60, even more years ago, maybe 100,000 years ago, maybe even further, 200,000 years ago, when early humans got sick and there was somebody in the clan or in the tribe who wanted to make them well. And maybe they would pray to the saints or spirits, or maybe they would give them herbs that were completely worthless. But if the person believed in it and believed in the prayers, they would get well more often than not. Well, today we call that the placebo effect. What if somebody didn't believe in it and said, oh, that's nonsense, all these uh, mushrooms that you're giving me, these seeds that you're giving me aren't any good? Well, those persons, by and large, died. And when they died, their genes dropped out of the gene pool and they didn't have descendants. So over the years, the people who responded to placebo had children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who also manifested the placebo effect. And so this aided human survival. So today, placebo is so strong that it probably accounts for at least 40% of the effectiveness of any medicinal drug that's given, and sometimes as much as 50 or 60%. In fact, you can even give a placebo instead of giving a medication, and more often than not, the person will get well because of the power of belief and suggestion, hope and faith. This, this important trait, the trait of what we call suggestibility, is something that goes back to shamanic treatment at the dawn of history. So it's almost like if you can believe you're healthy, if you can honestly convince yourself you're healthy. So like, um, I believe I heard a story, you tell a story before about actually being able to destroy a wart just by by concentrating every day on cutting off its blood supply mentally? Oh, good heavens, yes. There's a whole literature on this. Hypnosis can get rid of warts. Self-suggestion can get rid of warts. Imagination can get rid of warts. And you're right. It cuts off the blood supply to the wart. 
and the wart shrivels up and dies. It doesn't do this 100% of the time, but it does this more often than you'd expect if the wart had not been treated at all. One of the first studies along this line was done by Monty Ullman, who I worked with back at my Monty's Medical Center doing the dream telepathy research. And I think that's pretty well established now, power of suggestion in terms of wart removal. Now you take that a little further and imagination and suggestion can help people to heal themselves of a number of different ailments. Of course, you also want to take advantage of the best that medical care can give you, especially enlightened medical care that doesn't overdrug or overdose or over uh, surgicalize a person. But self-healing can be a very, very important part of this project and this prospect. Yeah, I've actually heard stories before of uh, people who had recovered from cancer and, and had actually mentioned they had, they had devoted time each day to concentrate and focus on uh, killing, like actually watching cancer cells in their body disintegrate. Well, you see, that goes back to Native Americans. They don't see a distinction between mind, body, and spirit. In the West, of course, we do. In fact, we deny spirit and then we divide the mind from the body. <laughs> and one of my colleagues that has, uh, again, written a lot about shamanism, Jean Ockerberg, did an experiment some years ago where she had a group of people um, focus on their cancer cells, actually draw pictures of their cancer cells, and also draw pictures of the immune system. And the people that drew pictures of their cancer cells as being very weak, like mud and slime, and the immune system as being very robust, like rocket ships and white knights and warriors, they're the people who survived. The people who thought of the white blood corpuscles as clouds or as mist, and the cancers being crabs or shellfish or, or rocks, they're the people who died. And so, again, a person's imagination can be self-suggestion and can be very vital in terms of maintaining health and also in terms of, uh, of curing disease in one way or another. That is fascinating. I have one question before, uh, before I forget. Um, <clears throat> Stanley, would you, uh, if you had to go back or if you could go back and redo, redo anything, uh, especially in regards to to your book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder, would you would you change anything or or uh, do anything differently? Oh, I certainly would. We made a very bad mistake in The Voice of Rolling Thunder. That's why I want to sell as many copies as I can so we can fix the mistake. We talk about the shaking tents. Now, Rolling Thunder didn't do the shaking tent ceremony, but other Native Americans have. Right. And in the shaking tent ceremony, you bind up the shaman and put the shaman in the tent <clears throat> and the tent starts to shake and you know the shaman can't shake the tent because the shaman has been bound now of course a good magician could do the same thing so I'm not claiming a great deal from this except it's been done for and observed for a couple of hundred years and in the book we talk about the shaking tent ceremony but we say that at the end of the ceremony the uh, shaman is unbound the cords are loose and they're not at the end of the ceremony the shaman is still bound 
you've got to go back and change that one word to make it accurate. And I'm aggravated that I didn't catch that before the book came out. Oh, geez. You're being pretty hard on yourself, Stanley. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not too bad at all. Well, you know, we introduced people to a lot about Native American history, Native American customs. And so it's even much more than the story about Rolling Thunder. We bring in a lot that the reader uh, probably is not going to be exposed to one way or another in their ordinary reading. Yeah, it was a fascinating, fascinating read, Stanley. I really liked it. Um, I'm going to read some of it, uh, some of it over again for sure, especially the shamanic healing and the the sweat lodge chapter. I just did a sweat lodge uh, on Sunday, kind of in in celebration of uh, interviewing with you. It was just me and the medicine woman. So that is just remarkable. It really is because the sweat lodge was a very commonly used healing practice and just think of it you sweat the impurities out of your body you're with a group of people who give you social support and then there's usually some drumming before and after it's a guy so there's a lot of things going for it yeah it was beautiful and, and i'm so glad to hear that you have been a participant of it yeah i'm going to bring darren with me next time i think <laughs> okay good for you so did I hear, I thought I heard a rumor about maybe a, a documentary uh, you know, about your life. Is that true? or? Oh, good heavens. People have filmed so many aspects of my life, and they've done so many interviews. And so if they can ever get the money together to uh, edit it properly, there might be a documentary. I just hope I'm still alive when it comes to pass. But I... I I, I don't have anything to do with that. That's a project that uh, Saybrook University is involved with, and if people want to donate a few dollars, they just send a check to Saybrook University, and they can get the address off my website, which is stanleykripner.weebly.com. And, of course, Saybrook is in San Francisco, California, sure. Yeah, we'll make sure we, we put a link to that in the in the show notes so people can... Uh... Okay click right over and then how could people buy your book what's the best way for them to buy your book they can buy the book from amazon.com they can get it from my website they can get it from their local bookstore um if people are in the bay area i'm doing several book signings in the next couple of months and all of that is on my website they can look for it there and if they can't buy the book any other way, it's only $20. They can write out a check and send it to me, and I will personally autograph and send off a copy to them. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I recommend that, that people go out and get it because it was, it was a great read and a good look into a culture that a lot of people don't see. Yes, that's one thing I like about the book because we have given a big chunk of the book to a description of Native American culture. And, of course, when the Europeans arrived, there were over 500 Native American cultures in what today is the United States. And they were very, very different in many, many ways. Rolling Thunder didn't only study Cherokee healing and Shoshone healing. Those were his identifications. He studied four other types of Native American healing also, so that he'd be prepared for just about anything. Yeah, he was truly intertribal in that way. Is that what you yes, call it? Was. Yeah. Yes, intertribal. Was it uh, Rolling Thunder who gave you your uh, your native your Indian name? No, I got my Indian name from Dr. Edward Richardson. He was the first clinical psychologist who was Native American, 
and got a Ph.D. in clinical psychology, wonderful man. He died just as the book was coming out, and his widow was so happy that uh, uh, that he knew that the book was coming out. And, of course, um, I had known him for, actually, longer than I'd known Rolling Thunder. We go way, way, way back, and he had done a lot to advance Native American causes and Native American rights and to encourage Native American boys and girls to go to school and to go to graduate school and to play a part in uh, controlling their own destiny. So as I understand it, you're also uh, uh, the godfather of the Grateful Dead Caucus? Well, the Grateful Dead Caucus is a group of scholars, people in academic institutions and universities, who gather once a year and give very, very scholarly papers on the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and they've called me the Godfather because I am the first one who took the Grateful Dead seriously in terms of knowing that they had some depth to them and that the people involved in the Grateful Dead were very intelligent and very knowledgeable in terms of musicology. And so, not knowing it, Yes, I kicked off the serious study of Grateful Dead literature. Now there are several books out about the Grateful Dead and about and about the scholarship. Well, we'd like to, to really thank you for coming on, Stanley. I really hope uh, maybe maybe someone can get a Kickstarter going or somehow someone can put together that documentary because I'd, I'd love to see it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Maybe one of your listeners will be so inspired to do that. Thank you. Yeah, you've been absolutely... Uh an inspiration to me and, and, um, and to, and to a lot of people, you know, it's just, uh, you've got so much, uh, experience and you've just done so many, so many wonderful things. You've been involved in so many different things. It's, I, I hope a lot of people, uh, you know, get to buy your book and learn more about you and Rolling Thunder. And thank you for a very intelligent interview. You've asked a lot of good questions. our interview with uh, Dr. Stanley Krippner from uh, Saybrook University in San Francisco. Just an absolutely fascinating guy. Blew my fucking mind again. <laughs> yeah, he's been into into so much stuff. I, I had so many questions for him and and the whole, uh, you know, shamanism thing. And he's just he's just involved in so much. I mean, when I look back at his uh, like his Wikipedia page, he's, he's co-authored something like 20 books and co-edited a bunch of them like everything from dream research to, to shamanism to consciousness. And, and he's still, you know, he's still a very healthy, skeptical guy, right? Yeah, and he's, I mean, I, I think the guy's 80, 80 years old. Yeah. And he's yeah. still, like, uh, still... A whippersnapper. Yeah, he's still, like, sharp as a tack. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully he's got a few more books in him. That's for sure. But thanks again, Stanley, for coming on. And again, big thanks to uh, RPJ for coming on uh, for the intro there. We'll have him back in a couple of weeks as well. Yep. And what do we got coming up? Uh, next we got, uh, well, actually, we're recording this on Tuesday, and tomorrow we're going on uh, the Nat and Marie show. It's a podcast. I think it's out of Toronto, Canada. Uh, they've asked us to come on and be panelists, so uh, you guys can look look out for that. It's uh, Nat and Marie show. I'm, you can find it on uh, in iTunes, of course. 
and uh, we'll be on the next episode of that. So that's something uh, the listeners can look for. And then we have uh, a NASA scientist coming up very shortly. Yeah, Dr. Philip Metzger uh, out of Florida, Kennedy Space Center, I think. Yeah, he's uh, he's a scientist, uh, a physicist, and a planetary scientist, and he's uh, works at the lab. I think he runs the lab. I'm not sure he works there. He works in it for sure. I think he might run it uh, the sla- the space mining technologies department. So he's all about his blogs, all about. Uh, mining asteroids, which asteroids to mine. Um, we'll get the next episode. We'll have the links to his blog. It's it's a really cool blog. People should check it out. But I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, we get to talk to an actual uh, NASA scientist. So that's that'll be exciting. Yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah, and then after that, we'll have uh, Robbie Graham, of course, of silverscreensaucers.com. Yep, so it's a busy week. We're, we're cramming in a lot of stuff, and uh, we're both really excited about it. Uh, you can get a hold of us if, if you want. My email is uh, graham at grimerica.com. That's G-R-A-H-A-M at grimerica.com. Yeah, or uh, feedback at grimerica.ca or I'm darren at grimerica.com. Um, and, of course, we'll have links to where you can get Stanley Krippner's book, his um, his website, of course, and all that. Um and I was thinking, uh, hopefully, somebody can put a Kickstarter together. Uh, maybe one of our listeners knows how. I don't know how. I'm clueless, but you know how? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. Well, I know how to donate. I know. I'll, don- uh, I'll donate to the Kickstarter. Yeah, maybe someone can get that going and get in touch with Saybrook University and uh, get some crowdsourcing going on this. Or, or of course, as Stanley said, you can make a make a donation through the university. So we should we'll link to that as well in the show notes. Alrighty. Well, thanks a lot, Darren. That was great. Okay, and of course, we'll have links to uh, all the music you heard in this episode as well. And uh, we'll see you when we see you. Ciao, man. <laughs>